for they shall be called the children of God. Now, I think we all wish to be children of God. We don't want to be children of anybody else, for sure. And we're here because we wish to be children of God. So he says the peacemakers are the ones that are going to be that. Okay? Now, I'm going to approach this today perhaps a little differently than you might expect it to be approached. I think the approach of everybody don't fight, everybody play nice, uh, might be uh, what you would expect me to come up with. But uh, sometimes we don't always, or I don't always, come from the exact direction you might have thought I would. So we'll, we'll approach this a little differently. There'll be some don't fight, play nice as we go, certainly. But I want to look at a broader view and a bigger picture than perhaps we might just naturally think about as we read that sentence. Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, let's all go make peace. Uh, that's easy to say. There's not much peace on earth today, is there? Uh, goodwill toward all men, there's not much of that either. So, uh, there, there's a problem. And God wants us, I think we'll see, to be participants in bringing about peace on earth. It's not just how we get along with each other. Uh, there's a much, that's important, but there's a much bigger picture to consider. So let's ask some questions then. He says to be peacemakers. Yeah, okay, I think all hands on deck. That's important, that's good, that's something God would want us to do. And that's a prerequisite to becoming a child of God. But what about this question? At what cost? Does he expect us to be peacemakers at any cost? At all costs? Or what costs? You see, when there's trouble and strife, enmity, animosity, anger, resentment, whatever, any of those negative attitudes and approaches and feelings, something has to come along to modify that, to change it, to correct it. Uh, there was a song out many years ago about attitude adjustment out. <laughs> and this guy had some attitudes, and along came somebody, I don't remember what all the song was about, whacked him alongside the head or something and to adjust his attitude. And that's what the song was all about. So there are attitudes that have to be adjusted. But how far do we go toward adjustment? How much responsibility do we have? There's a price to pay to make peace. If there's trouble, somebody has somewhere to pay some kind of price to cause peace to come out of hard feelings. And hard feelings can be very, very deep-seated and hard to get rid of. So sometimes the cost can be pretty high. I mean, some little irritation, that can go away, and you can say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way, or I'm sorry it sounded that way, or whatever. And easily, maybe some problems can be solved that weren't too deep. But if they've been there a while, if they were deep-seated in the first place, and they've uh, turned into uh, anger, resentment, and so on, and even toward bitterness, and he warned us in uh, Hebrews 12, 
Do not let yourself get like Esau, who was so bitter against Jacob, and so bitter about life in general as a result, that he just could not get over it, even though he sought it with tears. And yet, he couldn't seem to change his attitude. So that's getting to... That's getting way over there in the extreme, and I don't know that there was any helping he saw by a human being. It had gone so far, I don't think Jacob would have had a chance at it. And God was even challenged by that. And Paul wrote about it there, I think Paul, in Hebrews, and says, don't let any of you get there. So, there's little squabbles that can be resolved pretty easily. And it gets more and more difficult the worse the situation is until it becomes almost impossible or impossible as humans. So what's our responsibility? How far does it go? When do we say the cost is too high? Do you ever say that? God just makes a statement here, blessed are the peacemakers, can that be modified in any way, uh, depending on circumstances, or not? Let's look into that a bit. First of all, go to Romans 12. This chapter begins to touch on this subject quite a bit, and then gets down toward the end of it uh, quite specific about it. But let's see what kind of language is used here to approach the ultimate uh, statement made later in the chapter. Because this is a lot of build-up here, and I think that it's very, very important for us. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I'm calling on the mercy of God and beseeching you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now there's a cost right off the bat. If we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, that is a cost. Now I deeply appreciate, as an aside, and I meant to say at the announcements, how many have just so selflessly volunteered to help out with Shirley with others who are sick over the years, and you're sacrificing your time, your life, your energy, your sleep to help someone who cannot, at this point, help herself much. And that is a living sacrifice. It isn't at the cost of death. You don't have to die to do this one, but you do have to present yourself as a living sacrifice. And by the mercy of God, the Apostle here is beseeching us to do that. And I'm thankful for what I see here in this congregation of people willing to do that. That means you're paying some attention to God. And that, uh, that's a good thing. So presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, godly, upright, doing the right things, uh, which we covered recently as well, righteousness, holiness, uh, essentially the same thing. Acceptable unto God. 
which is your reasonable service. Now, why is that a reasonable service? Christ our Savior sacrificed himself as a living sacrifice for 33 and a half years, and then he sacrificed himself with his life. So, if our Savior, our Redeemer, our Mediator, our older brother, sacrificed himself in a living way, and then through death, I think it's only reasonable to say that we ought to at least go as far as sacrificing ourselves in a living way. That's what he calls on us to do. Then, be not conformed to this world, be, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we know what the will of Satan is. We know what the will of the world is, and that is that we follow pernicious, empty, sinful, evil ways, selfish ways. That's what the world is all about. So he tells us to be transformed from that because we have in the past been conformed to that. We probably grew up thinking the way of the world because that was what was taught us. That was what was the example around us. And then at some point, we begin to say, that's not right. I need to be conformed to God, or transformed to God, not conformed or shaped like the world. So, in presenting ourselves before God and to our brothers, uh, we can't be like the world. So that begins to raise the question, then, of do we make peace at all costs? Now, you're not going to make peace with this world unless you begin to act like they act, right? It says, if you're different from them, then they're not going to like you. And we've all experienced a certain amount of that, I'm sure, with family and friends and business associates and whatever. So, there's a level there, obviously, at which it is essentially impossible to make peace with them. You've tried to make peace with your relatives over religious issues. Uh, there are times where God is only called one member of the marriage and not the other. And it was unpeaceful and unable to be fixed. And God said, in that case, you can divorce that mate since they won't let you worship God in peace. And you're no longer bound to them. Now, death was intended to be until death do us part. But he made some extenuating circumstances, such as fornication, adultery, sex sin, where it could be broken. That's the only one he made, except the one in 1 Corinthians 7, where he is able to call one and not the other. He never anywhere said he'd call both. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> but as important as marriage is, he is the one who made the exception that they will not allow you to worship God in peace. Because worshiping God is the most important thing there is for you, and it's far more important than a physical marriage. Marriage to Christ is a much high, higher level marriage than a human marriage.
This one's on a physical level as long as we both shall live, unless God's exceptions come into play. But that one is eternal, forever, with Christ. So he said, if your mate will not let you live and worship God in peace, you can divorce, and you will not be bound to them physically anymore. That marriage is gone, and you can remarry, even, only within the church. You can't go... If you if you got an unconverted mate and they won't let you in peace, God, does, God says, don't go from the frying pan into the fire and do the same thing over again. No, you can remarry, but only in the church or only in the faith, only in the truth. So God himself makes an exception there where peace is unable to occur. And it has happened. Now, when that doctrine got changed to reflect that, when Mr. Armstrong finally came to understand that scripture, there are a lot of people that just said, oh, well, I'll just get a divorce. We're not getting along too well. <laughs> you know, uh, so they used it as license to just get divorced for any reason. Uh, well, we had a squabble yesterday, so I'm out of here. You know, whatever excuse they wanted to use. No, uh, God did not open it up to that. It was only if you were seriously trying to obey God and they were seriously trying to prevent you. Then that came to, into play. So, there you had one who was converted and one who was not. And God said, make peace and you'll be a child of God. And yet you tried and you couldn't make peace. <clears throat> now, how could you have made peace? How could you have? You could have. You could have quit the church. You could have said, I'm not going to try to worship God anymore. I'll go back to Methodist church with you. And you could have made peace. God didn't say to make peace at any cost, is the point I'm trying to make here. We make peace if possible. We can't make peace with this world. Don't be conformed to it because they're only going to like you if you're like they are. So you can't go that far in making peace with the world because we're to be being transformed away from what the world is and the more we become like God, if they're like the devil, the bigger the breach is going to be and the harder it is to get together. So there's a cost there that we can't meet, pure and simple. God understands that. That's the way this is written, the way that it is. <clears throat> For I say, verse 3, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, if he does, Therein lies one of the very first keys to disturbing the peace. When we are proud, when we are vain, when we are self-righteous, it disturbs the peace. Because we put ourselves above somebody else, our thinking above somebody else, our feelings above somebody else, 
and then we don't get along with them. So he cautions us here not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think soberly, maturely, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You need to sit down and think about the faith that God has given you. How strong is it? How much are you going to follow and trust God in faith that he will take care of things? And you don't have to lift yourself up because God himself says that he will abase the proud and raise up the humble or the meek. So he'll take care of that. You don't need to have a high opinion of yourself uh, just in order to feel good about yourself. He cautions us in here against doing that because that's one of the first things that creates a problem. I mean, you know, even as little children, you might be with your siblings or your cousins, and that's my toy. You don't love your sibling or your cousin as yourself at all. Because you want that, and sometimes, if it's their toy, you still want it. <laughs> and you snatch it away and say, I'm going to make it mine. So, when you think you are the owner, you are the possessor, you're more important, it creates problems. And screaming and crying and hair pulling at that age. And can even later. Different forms of that. So we need to be sober. Uh, another word here might be honest about your own measure of faith and where you stand. He is the publican, not as the rich man or the Pharisee. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. What was the one of the biggest causes of strife? and division and problems within the church of God in your experience and mine over the years. Politics, office, who could be a deacon, who could be an elder, who could be a minister, who could do this and who could do that. We don't have the same office, and yet people were jealous of each other, and they would try to climb over each other to get to be ordained or whatever was their desire. So he says here, we don't all have the same office, but covetousness and lust and greed and selfishness are works of the flesh. So if somebody has an office you don't have, why are you jealous of them? Because if God gave that office and didn't give it to you, that's on God. You going to argue with him? You might argue with the preacher that ordained one and didn't ordain you, and I saw a lot of that go on. A lot of competition in the church. Shouldn't have been there, because it disturbed the peace. Well, some people were thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Well, I deserve, I'm just as good as he is. 
Matter of fact, I think I'm better than he is. Why'd they overlook me and ordain him or her? There was a lot of that. It became sickeningly stinky, is what it became. Some of you were there, some of you weren't, some of you saw it, some of you haven't. But uh, wherever it raises its head, it's ugly. <laughs> That's just all there is to it. So, he says, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. Now, you like it when your body gets along with all your body parts. You don't like it when they don't. If you're stub your toe, your whole body hurts. It, pain reverberates up through you. It gets to your head. Your head doesn't like it. And there's no telling what kind of thought goes through your head or what might come out your mouth, which is another part. Because you're hurt. doesn't matter which part of the body. It's any part of the body that hurts, the whole body hurts. He'll say that here in a minute, I think. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We are connected. If your arm gets separated from your body and is no longer collected or, or connected, it's not part of the body anymore. It used to be, but now it's laying there, and it's not part of the body, and it withers up and dies. And the rest of the body hurts because it's gone. And sometimes, when you lose a foot or an arm, it still hurts or itches months, years later, after it's gone. The body continues to suffer for not having it. A, for it's not having its use anymore, and B, because an appendage that's actually gone still causes you pain and suffering and emotional issues. But we're one body in Christ, all members one of another. We cannot look upon ourselves as anything but a member of the body. We can't separate ourselves from the body and claim to be part of the body anymore. Paul told us very clearly there in Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially as we see these things drawn in. Well, we see them drawing near. Not only do we see them drawing near, we see them here already. And getting worse day by day. So how much more should we stick together and meet together and be together and iron sharpen iron and help each other and encourage each other and love each other? Maybe sometimes we get a sickness or somebody disabled, or hurt, or maimed, or whatever, in order to get us to draw together to help that member that's hurting. Huh? Now, if you have a hand that's, well, let's say a sprained wrist, and that thing hurts, doesn't the rest of your body pay attention to that? Isn't the rest of your body real careful what happens so that that pain doesn't come and hurt the rest of you? Yeah. So 
God lets some of these things happen on purpose so that we might pull together as a body to help the afflicted parts and so that we might draw near to Him who can, who can actually heal the affected part. And we pray for one another for His help to make peace among our members and in our bodies. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whatever mercy, whatever grace, whatever unmerited pardon God shows, it's something He does that is given to us. And then He names some things that could be given as gifts from God, not just a gift from the minister who just ordained his buddy. You know, we play golf together, so I like you and I think I'll ordain you. Or whatever. Now these are things that God says He in His grace confers. Sometimes it's a gift of prophecy. If so, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Prophecy can also mean speaking. Uh, you've been given that to do. Do it according to your faith as far as your trust and faith and your understanding go. Don't be jealous of the one who was given. Our ministry, let us wait on our ministering for he that teaches on teaching. So whether it's ministering, and that could be in terms of, uh, of public speaking, but service or administration or ministering to the needs or the hurts or the wants of others can also be a ministry or a service as well. Some are given of an ability to teach, and God has ordained them to be teachers. Not everybody. And he even says in one scripture, be not many teachers, or be not many masters or overseers. We're not, we're not to need too many chiefs and not enough Indians, uh, to put it another way. Uh, a few is enough. In some cases, people think a few is too many. We shouldn't even have ministers. We shouldn't have teachers. Because i got brains and I'm just as smart and I can teach myself. Now you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think because Paul also made it very clear that we have to have teachers and that no man can learn without them. Now that doesn't mean you can't learn from Scripture. He's not making that as an all-encompassing statement. But God has to appoint those whom he teaches and instructs and inspires to help us see bigger pictures than we might ourselves come to. It's an augmentation, in other words, of your capacity to think and read and understand. Would any of us, to make the point, have understand what we understand today had it not been for God inspiring and teaching Herbert Armstrong? I wouldn't have in a million years understood what I understood today if he hadn't started that process. And even in our kids and our grandkids, if they understand, it was because some had understanding of God's truth through the one God raised up who passed it along in some form or fashion. It came from somewhere, didn't it? And you didn't get it from studying this book. 
Not unless God opened your mind and sent somebody to show you and help you understand. So we get a little knowledge and suddenly we think it came from us. And that we're so smart that we don't need a teacher. And yet the scripture plainly says that we must have. Not only in terms of overall understanding and even specifics, but also in terms of reminders of inspiration and encouragement in all the things that come from the Word of God, because sometimes you read depressed, I mean, read the Scripture and you're depressed anyway. And sometimes you need someone to tell you what you ought to be thinking instead of what you're thinking. You know, I remind me every week. You know, I learn more as I prepare a sermon than you'll ever learn from hearing it. Because I have to think about it more, and you can let it go on over your head, and sometimes 30 minutes or two days later, you can't even remember what it was about. Now, hopefully, it internalized to some degree, and, and lessons were learned, and knowledge was imparted, even though you might not remember specifically what it was, hopefully it becomes part of your memory bank and your subconscious and will come back at the time you need it. Because God did say that he would give us what we need when we need it. But you know, that happens with me, I think, every week. I used to spend hours and hours preparing sermons. Days even, when I was a younger man. I don't do nearly as much of that anymore. Maybe I should, maybe it shows, I don't know. But nonetheless... After so many years and going over the Scripture so many times, I feel like God just often inspires me. I sit down to do it, and Scriptures will just start coming to mind, just like that. I have to write them down fast before I forget them. Uh, because God is there, and He is inspiring. I asked this morning, show me which... There's lots of Scriptures in here about peace and war. Or War and Peace, as the book went. It was a thick book, too. <laughs> There's a lot in here. Well, I can't give it all to you. So I asked God, help me think of or see or find the ones that you would have your people here today. And we pray before the service starts that God inspire and guide and direct what is said. Now, do we believe it or not? You know? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> we don't want to get too much into government at this point, but uh, there are a lot of things that cause a lack of peace and unsettled minds. <clears throat> Verse 8, He that exhorts, let him think on exhortation. Sometimes we can encourage people, exhort people, sometimes strenuously along certain lines. And that can create problems. Because if somebody thinks more highly than himself, of himself than he ought to think, and you go to them to exhort them to do a certain thing or to be a certain way, oh, they get defensive. Because nobody, as a human being, likes to be told what they ought to do. It is an automatic part of the human psyche 
<coughs> I will do what I want to do. It's just automatic. And we have to be trained out of that. Whether we're little children who want their way, we have to be trained out of that to do the way that is right, not the way that they want, which is usually wrong. Not always, but frequently. And we as adults are the same way. We frequently don't want to do what's right. We want to do what's wrong. We kid ourselves that what we're doing or wanting to do is okay. We justify it in some manner or fashion. And somebody comes along and pops our bubble, we get defensive. We don't want to hear it. That's our natural way. So, if you are one who is able to carefully correct and exhort people, that's a tough chore. And you have to think about it and try to do it right. Because sometimes we can go about it in a wrong way. And that doesn't help but makes the situation worse, especially when there's carnal human nature involved. <clears throat> anyway, let him do it with simplicity. Or as my margin says, where is that? Uh, liberally. He that rules with diligence. Uh, keep a tight ship. Don't let it get too loose where it's just kind of being driven everywhere by the wind and the waves. But you have to guide and steer and correct the course. Uh, I've done some work on ships and boats and I found that if I'd turned loose the wheel, they'd run into the rocks. I had some experiences in Alaska where I realized that can happen real easily. Sometimes they do run aground. So you have to be careful. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be on people and just constantly telling them everything to do. Now, that's overruling because they need to be able to lead their own lives and they shouldn't have to be told every little thing to do. And that's not what you're supposed to do as a leader or a ruler, but you are supposed to be diligent about the job. And there are different styles, different people, different personalities, and there's room for that. But be diligent regardless. Uh, one scripture says, know well the state of your flocks and herds. You ought to know what's going on. Otherwise, the wolves and the bears are going to kill them all. I'm being diligent right now with my chickens because a coyote began to kill them. And I'd lost nearly half of them before I realized it. Now that a coyote is dead, the chickens have quit disappearing. Wow. Well, okay, I was diligent in trying to find a way to get rid of that coyote and managed to do so. <coughs> anyway... He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. None of this, okay, I forgive you, tried it. <laughs> you know, all right, you said it, I said it, I forgive you. Uh, but your attitude indicates that you don't like it. You didn't want to. You just said it because they said, you must for say forgive me. All right, you're forgiven. No, you're not. People, it's cheap to say it. But to do it, that's different. 
and to do it with a cheerful attitude is really different. Where it's, where it's a genuine forgiveness, a godly forgiveness, he forgets it. Whatever the infraction, it doesn't matter how bad it was, it can be an absolute, outright, idolatrous profaning of his name and his glory and calling him Satan the devil. You could do that to God, and he would forgive you when you asked for it and never mention it to you again. That's his kind of forgiveness. How we doing? Mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Feigned love. Acting like love. Protestant love. No, no hypocrisy. It's love from the heart. He's telling us how to have peace here, isn't he? Isn't he telling us here how to be peacemakers? If we follow through with what Paul is saying about the body itself and how it needs to have peace among the members, that's what this is all about. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. That echoes what he said about not being conformed to the world, but transfer, transformed into godliness. If you abhor evil and people are acting evil, you're not going to make peace with them. Because you're not going to become evil as they are. not going to happen. So there's a limit to peacemaking. But he's also telling us here how to create peace. Okay. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Kindness, meekness, gentleness, and so on. I saw somebody who's not converted just a couple nights ago uh, working with Shirley. And... Shirley kept trying to take her covers off. She wouldn't go to the bathroom. She she was just having difficulty. And this person was so kind and gentle and just kept saying, Shirley, you, you can't get up. I'm sorry. And would hold her hand to keep her from pulling her covers off and trying to get up to go to the bathroom. And I understand what Shirley was going through. Uh, but here was somebody who was kindly affectioned, sweet to her, nice to her, never lost her patience. Long night it was. Never lost her patience. Just so kind and sweet and gentle. And I marvel at that. Now maybe inside she had, wears some leather straps here. Let's, let's tie those hands down. <laughs> Cause it could become difficult. But no, here was somebody who's just a kind, sweet person. What an example. Wonderful. And therefore, there was no, there was no uh, disturbing of the peace. Because if she'd got nasty with Shirley, Shirley might have got nasty back with her. Because she was in pain and hurting, you know. And uh, so it's difficult for everybody. But because somebody was being kind and gentle and sweet, it never escalated all night long. It's a tussle, yeah, but it didn't escalate. 
So that's why he tells us this. Be kindly affectioned. With brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Being willing to put the other ahead of yourself so that you love that person as much as you love yourself. A tall order. Uh, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the eternal. So take care of things, don't be lazy, and have a zealous, fervent spirit. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Is a good scripture to put with that. Continuing instant in prayer. If we are worshiping God in the way that we ought to be, uh, prayer should not ever be too far away from our hearts and minds, because God should never be very far from our hearts and minds. And therefore, we can pray instantly. You know, you're close enough to God that you can establish contact with Him. Now, we've all experienced times when we thought we were praying to the ceiling. Uh, it didn't seem like God was hearing her. We weren't getting through. And I, I thought that at times over the years. And if I gave up, I never made the contact I wanted. But if I kept at it, oftentimes there would be a breakthrough where I feel like I got my attitude right, things got better somehow, and now God's listening. God's hearing me now. Whereas it didn't feel like he was. And then, through fervent in spirit or zealousness or just plain old stubbornness or whatever, you keep on until you feel the contact come. I, I suppose we've all experienced that. Where I, now I feel like God's really listening to me. He's really hearing me. And that's a good feeling to have when it comes through. Rejoicing in hope. Hope is one of the three biggest things. See, if we have these attitudes, we're hoping for each other as members of the body. This, this is all still in the context of the body and the different parts. I hope for me and I hope for you, in other words, is the way it ought to be. Patient in tribulation. We'll have troubles, trials, difficulties, chastening, sicknesses, illnesses, whatever, we have to be patient through it all. And since this is talking about all the members of the body, we have to be patient in their tribulations, troubles, temptations, problems. Patient not just with ourselves and patient toward God, but patient with each other as members of the same body. Continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints, doing what we can for each other, whatever people's needs are, and given to hospitality, to being willing to share our time, our food, our home, or whatever, with others. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. There's a pretty good lump right there in peacemaking. Because when somebody's got a bad attitude toward you and they're sometimes talking behind your back and you hear about it, it's hard not to kind of get your back up and your claws out. 
And then you do the same thing that you're upset with them for doing. <laughs> right? What goes around comes around. I don't like what they're doing or saying about me, so I'll go tell somebody else how bad they are. You're just as bad as they are or worse, because you're passing it along. When are we ever going to learn when somebody starts speaking evil or cutting somebody down or stabbing them in the back or complaining about them, just to tell them, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't need to hear it. Your problem. Not my monkey, not my zoo. You go take care of your own. That's a hard lesson to learn. Because humans like to hear scuttlebutt. They like to hear rumor. They like to hear imaginations. They like to hear accusations. They like to hear anything that puts somebody on a lower level than they are. That's what it's all about. Vanity, ego, and self-righteousness. That's what all the backbiting generally is about. Is us leveraging ourselves above somebody else by putting them down. I'm mad, I'm hurt, I'm resentful. So I'm justified in telling others about how badly I've been treated. There's a word that comes immediately to mind. I won't say it here in public, but the initials are BS. You don't have that right. And if you do it, you're hurting other members of the body the way you've been hurt. But if we're hurt, we feel like hurting somebody else. You bit me, I'll bite you. That starts on a pretty small level as kids, doesn't it? Do we ever grow up? Verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Have compassion, have love, have mercy, have kindness. And if they are hurting, hurt with them. Sympathize with them. Try to help them in whatever way you can. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Another way of saying, don't compare yourselves among yourselves because it isn't wise. We can only compare ourselves with two, the Father and the Son. That's the only ones we can compare ourselves with. But as humans, we like to compare ourselves among ourselves, and we start that early in life, and in most cases, never get over it. Because we always evaluate whether somebody is prettier than I am, uglier than I am, taller or shorter, which isn't a debility, but meaner or sweeter, or more righteous or less righteous, we use ourself as the standard by which we judge others by nature. We'll put them either lower or higher based on what we think we see. And that is dynamite in human relations and peacekeeping and communication. Because the only standard that you're trying to live up is to God, and every last one of us falls miserably short of it, so we don't need to think of ourselves highly, and we don't need to always be trying to figure out the pecking order about who's better or worse than we are. Why do I even say this? Nobody listens to this. 
Nobody pays any attention to this. We just continue to do it. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And that's why Paul said the foolishness of preaching. Because humans change slowly or not at all. And I could say this every week for the next 16 years, and maybe a few would begin to get the picture. Maybe a few. That's just the way we are. We like to compare ourselves among ourselves. And if there were a whole pile of pigeonholes here, we like to find the one that this one fits in. High one, low one, one in the middle, wherever. We like to decide what somebody is and stick them in that hole. That's God's job. He knows which hole you fit in. But we don't. We just don't. We can't judge the heart. We look and we try to figure somebody out. And we have all kinds of imaginations. Some good, preponderantly evil, however. Because we're not trying to make somebody else look better than us. We're trying to look, make us look better than them. That creates an awful lot of animosity, frustration, difficulty, because if we have those thoughts, we'll often say them to somebody, won't we? And then that creates trouble. Now, if we're going to be the children of God, we have to learn to be peaceable and get along with each other and not be railing at each other, because the children of God and the family of God as members of the Bride of Christ, are going to get along perfectly. Perfectly. No shadow of turning, no shadow of, doubt, shadow of doubt, no communication problems, no why are you in the 133,000th chair and I'm in the 143,896 chair. None of that. We'll all be perfectly content with first chair or 144,000's chair because we have the right attitude. That's what it's all about. And we won't compare ourselves among ourselves and we'll get along perfectly. Anybody ready for that? Can we do that yet? I hope. Where was that? Hope for each other. I hope we all get there. Okay. Don't be wise in your own conceits, thinking that you know about that person. You're just conceited and vain, and you're using it wrongly. Then we wonder why we can't get along, <laughs> you know? Then we wonder. Recompense to no man, evil for evil. He stabs you in the back, don't go stab him in the back. That's simple. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. We don't want to be lying to each other and bearing false witness against each other. There's no room for that. And if people insist on bearing false witness against each other, or dreamed up witness, whatever it is, things that aren't true, they think are, that's their opinion. No. We need to honestly consider what might be fact and what might be fiction in our own minds. 
Because we can imagine all kinds of things that simply aren't true. We can even see something happening. And we don't know what's true and what's not. There was a, what was the name of that outfit years ago that made movies about things like that? It was, they used an example of a car accident. And there were lots of witnesses to that accident. So they began to talk to different ones who saw it, and none of them had the same uh, sense of what happened. They all told a different story. What happened, happened. Okay? But people's perceptions of what happened were totally askew. That's just the way human minds work. Now, I've been involved a lot of times over lifetime in being on the spot when something happened that made it into the news or the TV news or whatever and got written up. And almost never, maybe there was once when it was all correct, but almost never do they get the names right, the addresses right, hardly anything about the situation right. My mother, getting transported dead to Texas, got on the TV news, the newspapers, the radio in St. George, something that happened in Texas, and they had hardly any of the facts straight. Hardly any of the facts straight. That's just one little example. So, our perceptions aren't always right. And we think we saw this, and it might not have been that at all. It might have been something totally different. But that's what I saw. I'm, it's my story and I'm sticking to it, you know. <laughs> Don't consider the facts. This is what I think I saw. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I've been accused in my life of things I did. I've been accused an awful lot more of things I didn't. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. But what good did it do anybody to speculate either way? Didn't make them more like God. Didn't help them toward the kingdom. They just wanted to speculate about me. Well, if you ain't got nothing to do better with your time, I guess go for it. But looks like we could find something better to do with our time than speculate about each other and worry about each other and stick each other in pigeonholes. What times are getting to be anyway? I talk along. Well, we're getting close. Well, let's finish this chapter anyway. Because we're getting down to what brought me to this chapter in the first place. Verse 18. If it be possible. Implying that it's difficult and might not be possible. But if it be possible. Any possibility. As much as lies in you with effort, with zeal, with concentration, with purpose, as much as it is within you, live peaceably with all men. That is a goal. That is a purpose. That is something we should be thinking about doing, trying to do, with a lot of energy, is to get along in peace with everybody. 
Now, we've already seen that that is not always possible. You can't be at peace with the world because the only way you can do that is do what they do and think like they think. So you can't go there. You can't pay that price. You can't pay that cost. So there are some areas where peace simply cannot be had. But Paul does say, if it be possible, if you can find any way, work at it, think about it, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Live the whole, the whole uh, subject here is the body and its different parts. So he's speaking in that context, and he's talking about us as parts of the body of Christ. If at all possible, live peaceably together, because you're all part of the same body. The world is not part of that body. So it goes without saying that you can't get along with that and live in peace with the world. But you do have an opportunity, a chance, to live in peace with the rest of the body of Christ. That is what he's saying here that we need to be doing, is within the body itself, that being the whole context. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Eternal. So when he says to live in peace, if at all possible, with each other, he then says, don't try to get even. Don't try to seek vengeance. Don't try to make the other person pay. Because that doesn't bring peace. Give place to wrath. In other words, don't give a place for wrath. Set wrath aside. Put it in its place. Place it over there. Don't be angry. Don't be wrathful with each other. I don't really get angry when I stub my toe on a chair at my toe. (laughs) I get angry with the chair. Why did you stick your leg out and stab my toe? And then I get mad at myself for being such a bumbling idiot that I ran into the chair when I began to come to my senses. No, when we hurt one another, we're not to try to get even. We're not to lash back. Well, you did this to me. No. God is the one who takes care of it. Vengeance is his. It's not ours. You pull my hair, I'll pull your hair, says one three-year-old to the other. You bite my toe, I'll bite your hand. That's on a raw level as we begin life. And then as we get older, we get in fist fights over it. And then as we get older, maybe we'll get out guns and knives. And maybe not with our own people, but somebody from overseas. Then we'll drop the guns and knives and get bombers. It escalates. It gets worse and worse. We've got to defend ourselves. We've got to get vengeance. We've got to make the other guy hurt for hurting us. And we don't care who it gets on 
when we make our splash. In fact, we'll even try to splash it on each other. You know what so-and-so did to me? BS comes to mind again. It's not our job. Live peaceably with each other. If somebody hurts you, you don't hurt back. Just that simple. You don't do it. If God feels that somebody needs punished or uh, chastened for that, it's his job, not yours, to do that. Now, he's given some who are the leaders the authority to chasten, to uh, even disfellowship. If somebody won't get along with the others the way they ought to, they can be set aside from the body so that they don't continue to hurt the body. So there is a time, not for vengeance, but a time for protecting the body from somebody who is hurting the body. We'll get to 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul caused the man committing incest to be separated from the body because he was hurting everybody else who were kind of going along with his sin. And then when he did repent, Paul said, now accept him back. Don't have vengeance, because that's what they wanted to do. Oh, once he was separated, now he's bad. We're not going to let him back. Yeah, but he repented. Well, I don't matter to me. I, that's what he did. He repented of it. He quit doing it. Now let him back and love him. When my toe quits hurting, I love it. When a member of the body straightens up, quits hurting the body, love it. Just love it. Don't get vengeance. Don't try to get even. Don't talk about them behind their back or in their face either, for that matter. If they need some recompense or pay, that's God's job, not yours. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there's a tough chore. Try to overcome the evil in the world by being good, and you're fighting a losing battle. But God tells us, and this again is in the body itself. This isn't talking about the world. This is about the body of Christ in this whole chapter. Try to do the best you can within the body to be nice to and kind to those who might not like you, have done evil to you, talked about you, done something you didn't like to them. Try to be nice to them. Try to be kind to them. And maybe your example of being nice and being kind will help them get rid of their anger and hurt and resentment or whatever it is they're feeling. Because you're not responding in kind. You're being nice to them. You're trying to be part of the body with them. So do that. Try to help each other. Now, once they're separated from the body, there's a reason they're not with the body. And that has to be fixed before they can be part of it. 
So what we treat others who are causing pain with or have become our enemies in their own mind and emotions, we have one approach to. Somebody who's separated away from, we stay away from until they get healed up and can be rejoined to the body. There's a difference in how they're treated and the way you treat someone who's still in the body. There's a lot more to get into, and some of that is part of it, and we'll get into that, but that's all the time we have for today. So uh, we need to think about this, that there are sometimes limits to peace, but we need to do all we can, especially within the body, to cause it to happen in earnestness and faith and love so that it doesn't remain, it doesn't stay, but it's gotten rid of. It's repented of. And let God take care of the punishments. It's not our job.